0: My guest today is Barry Weingast, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as the Ward C. Krebs Family Professor in the Department of Political Science at Stanford University. Barry, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks. Now, I'd like to talk to you about economic development, which is a common theme of a number of recent podcasts. In particular, I want to talk about your forthcoming book, co-written with Doug North and John Wallace, A Conceptual Framework for Interpreting Recorded Human History. Among other issues, you're interested in economic growth, the institutions, the societal infrastructure that makes growth possible. And the central idea of the book is that societies develop different ways to deal with violence. And those ways that they choose in turn affect the opportunity for growth and economic development. Describe the three types of societies that you mention in the book and how they cope with violence.
1: Well, there are three different types of societies which we call orders. And the first is the primitive order. Uh, and these are small bands of hunter-gatherer societies. Uh, uh, they tend to be small, 25 to 100. Uh, they tend not to be larger than that. Uh, there's very limited uh, specialization in these societies and hence very, very little accumulation of wealth. The second type of order is a limited access order, which we also call the natural state. Um, this society solves the problem of violence through limited access. The violence. One of the key things about violence is that violence uh, is that there tends not to be in these societies anyone who has a monopoly on violence. So there's a dist- what we call the distributive uh, access to violence. Uh, and so part of the key t- to these societies is um, ensuring that the different that different specialists in violence don't fight. So how do they do that? And one of the ways in which they do that is by uh, creating, um, creating rents so that people have a stake in peace.
0: And when you say they create rents, what do you
2: mean?
1: I mean that, that, that rights to particular economic activities uh, uh, such as trade are given out to particular individuals or groups. And so that they have, they gain rents or monopoly profits from these activities because they're the only ones that are allowed to do that. So if you want to trade across a border, you have to go through this particular intermediary, and so they're able to earn uh, rents through that, uh, through 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 those activities. But, so by suppressing competition, extra goodies are created
0: that people uh, who are singled out and identified have access to. Right? Doesn't that create violence as people try to get the Those access to those special favors, those special privileges?
1: Well, I think you've hit on a very important piece of it, and that is that that the distribution of goodies has to reflect the distribution of power. That is, has to reflect the distribution of access to violence, because if somebody has much greater access to violence than they have to the rents or privileges, then they're going to fight rather than cooperate.
0: So in this type of society, uh, power and economic, physical power, physical The opportunity to bludgeon your your fellow man uh, ends up aligning with your opportunity to exploit your fellow man. (laughs) Is (laughs) that that an accurate way to say it? That's right, yes. What are some examples of these? What do you have in mind when you talk about these limited access orders?
1: Well, I think historically, uh, most states in history have been limited access orders. So you think about medieval Europe. For example, all of the states of medieval Europe, such as Tudor England uh, or the uh, Carolingian France in the Middle Ages, uh, were limited access orders. And we think of most modern developing countries, such as Bolivia or Argentina or India, Russia, for example, are also various kinds of limited access orders or natural states. And then let's take some of the modern
0: ones. In these modern examples, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the sovereign or the dictator or the, uh, the leader is in charge of economic access, is that correct, to these well, to various
1: economic with- processes? We think of it more as a dominant coalition. There may be a leader, and sometimes charismatic leaders are very important for uh, maintaining a coalition. But I think the essence of the idea is really about a coalition. That is, there's uh, many many specialists in violence and many specialists in economic activities, and they form a coalition together uh, uh, where, where they respect one another's privileges and, 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 violent, and, and thereby prevent violence in these societies.
0: Yeah, do you... Do you contend that that that's the goal of this system is to prevent violence?
1: Well, I think in some sense in some sense it is, uh, <laughs> because people are far better off in a system that that w- without violence than not. You know, if you think about the falling of Somalia or Chad or Rwanda into violence, people e- even people being exploited are far better off under a system being exploited than they are under these civil war or conditions of civil war.
0: But but the way I think. Maybe it's better to think about it as uh, an equilibrium.
1: Mm-hmm. Is that
0: correct? Yes. Uh, a situation that might persist because it's not violent. In a violent situation, it's in mm-hmm. flux, and there's unknown outcomes that are going to happen.
1: Right. Very risky, and therefore it's it's hard to make investments under those situations, and so it's hard to you know have great degrees of specialization and exchange, and hence the production of wealth.
0: So, why don't In these limited access orders, and where the limited part, I assume, refers to both economic and political power, right? Absolutely. Right? So if there's limited access to economic and political power, and violence is successfully uh, subdued, which it is in in most of these societies, Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have a lot of warlords and gangs and all that, why don't they grow? Why aren't these limited access orders more successful given that the violence is subdued and there is the opportunity for investment the way you'd think would right. be the road to growth?
1: Well, there are several reasons and it all hinges on this idea of limited access. By virtue of limited access, it's, it's hard for individuals, just anyone to form organizations. And so there are limits of competition, there's limits on entrepreneurial power and the like, and of course there's monopoly rents throughout the system, the, the, all of which you know, place limits. And I think it's important to see this in a historical framework because in comparison to the primitive order, these societies produce great wealth. So if you think about the ancient civilizations, they're far more wealthy than the primitive orders that preceded them, you know, in the Pleistocene era, for example. Uh, And yet in comparison to the modern era where we have open access orders, uh, you know, they they do much more poorly.
0: So the limited access orders, be they... Tudor England or uh, North Korea
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, do much much better than uh, a primitive hunter gatherer society, but not nearly as well as the open access orders. Now you mentioned in passing, and I don't, I don't think it's a, I think it's a central idea of, of, of the book, the opportunity to form organizations. So talk mm-hmm. about that. Why is that? Why is that important? Because you could imagine, if you think about. Uh, A society such as um, North Korea, ancient Rome, um, any of these pretty successful, we might call them, uh, pretty successful societies by some historical standards, there's lots of folks who have lots of resources. Mm -hmm. Lots, though, is a relative term. Mm -hmm. It's a small number of people, Mm -hmm. but it's not not the monarch. The monarch Mm -hmm. doesn't have everything and everyone Mm -hmm. else is a serf. Your point Mm -hmm. about coalitions is that there are these various nodes Mm -hmm. of power, economic and and political power, spread out even in these dictatorial societies. You'd think that would be a source of potential capital, Mm -hmm. a a source of potential investment, etc. So what handicaps these societies from taking the next leap into a more successful economic system?
1: Well, part of it is the system of privilege and the, and the fact that there are limits on competition. I mean, one of the key things about competition, uh, sometimes thought of as Schumpeterian competition after the great mid-century economist uh, Joseph Schumpeter, is the idea of creative, dis- creative destruction, the idea that, that part of what the competitive economy is about is producing new ideas and new forms of organization and new products that outcompete the old. You know, the, the traditional idea of, uh, you know, the, the, co- the automobile replacing the horse and buggy, for example. And it's not the, it's not the companies that produce carriages that, uh, uh, that, that produce the automobile. And so this kind of creative destruction is very important. And it's very important for that to work. That is, for that to work, you have to have a degree of open access to organizations. And that's where the key feature of open access to organization comes in. The fact that anybody can create an organization and produce the next idea.
0: And in these limited access orders, you're suggesting that. I mean, when I think of organization, I think of cooperating mm-hmm. uh, with with a bunch of people. I think of five people with capital getting together to form form a company, uh, or to back someone who wants to form a company. Or I think of um, the American Civil Liberties Union. Or mm-hmm. you know that that's the 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 phrase organization conjures up that in, in our minds. But you're really talking about all kinds of associations,
1: correct? Mm -hmm. Right. Not just economic activity. We were focusing on economic activity because of the limits on competitive organizations and the limits on access to creating new organizations has direct economic effects, but it also has political effects. so, so, so this is also about whether or not there is a really uh, important, a really rich degree of a civil society that is organizations of all types, whether soccer leagues or civic organizations or churches, uh, political organizations of all different kinds, not just political parties, but interest groups and societies to the, you know, you know <laughs> and, and 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 book groups and the like. And so, a very rich civil society is very important uh, in an open access order,
0: but in a limited access order. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking again about North Korea, or ancient Rome, or some of these examples, they can have soccer clubs. They can, ha- I think, they it's imaginable. Uh, they could have book reading groups, maybe, maybe not. Maybe what they could read would be limited. I'm, I'm trying to understand what's crucial, and let me say it differently.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: When you see, use the phrase civil society, it, it evokes a certain richness of Mm-hmm. Of human possibility, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very, to me, a very magical and important part of, of of an open modern world we live in. It's clear that in some of these states that we're talking about, mm-hmm. those types of associations are ruled out mainly because they don't want people hanging around together. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous to the, exactly to the regime. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, so there's a whole set of human experience that's going to be uh, reduced Religious Mm -hmm. activity, social activity, uh, mutual interests like clubs, etc. Wouldn't these regimes, though, and these coalitions want to encourage economic association of certain kinds? And I I guess they Mm -hmm. do, but I guess they're also discouraging
1: others. That's right. I think that there are trade-offs in all of this, and that natural states or limited access orders are, in fact, greatly limiting the amount of economic activity and the creation of new economic Uh, organizations precisely because they compete away the rents of the existing organization. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that the rents uh, and privileges are part of the glue of society that keeps the society at peace, then this is very threatening. And so there's a trade-off. Yes, it would be better for growth in in the long run if we had more organizations, but that also threatens the fabric of society. And if violence breaks out, that makes us much worse off. And that's actually a key to where I think the economists go wrong, because the, the economists assume away the problem of violence. And if you assume away the problem of violence, then you think, well, well, then why isn't it just natural to form organizations because and allow people greater freedom to form organizations because that expands the economic pie, and if you expand the economic pie, it makes everybody better off. Potentially, yeah. Potentially, least. yes. We
0: understand that that you can have special privileges. I didn't mean, we economists who are the bad economists you're referring to, but. <laughs> Everyone understands that that there are uh, when the pie gets bigger
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, some people's slice could get smaller because the way the pie gets bigger right. uh, which is I think a useful way to think about it. but we generally argue that that if growth continues for a generation
2: mm-hmm. or
0: certainly two generations, almost everyone's slice is going to grow right. you think that would be an appealing selling point to right. dictators mm-hmm. for allowing more economic competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you suggesting that in those societies the potential level of growth and the, the time it would take is so long that their share wouldn't grow wouldn't manifest itself as being better? or is it more about an argument that people care about their relative status? They'd rather be a dictator in a crummy place than a than a happy middle class American uh, you know thriving in with a car in the
1: garage, etc. Experience is so rich and varied that I think each of those has uh, some embodiments around the world, but I don't think that that's the main issue. It seems to me that the main issue is really about violence. To the extent that um, this limited access and the creation of privilege is about the prevention of violence, then one of the problems with the scenario you described about growth over a two-generation period is that it doesn't happen. Right. Or that there's a risk that it won't happen because if part of the privilege, part of the, the value of the privileges is preventing people from exercising violence, then if you allow the kind of open access into in, in into business firms that will produce more growth over two generations, then that can threaten the rents and threaten peace. See, and so the risk is so there's a real trade off there. So so on the one hand Opening access has the potential to, to have two generations' worth of growth, but it also holds the potential of taking away the glue of society, which produces a risk of violence and civil war. And if you fall into violence and civil war, then you don't experience that where growth in disaster.
2: fact. I
0: don't understand yet, though, why uh, historically that that's the risk. So let, let's talk about a case where it's not the risk, mm-hmm. and then or a case where it is, where it's not the risk would be the world that most Americans say live in. Most mm-hmm. Americans, over the last 50 years, American living standards have increased dramatically, mm-hmm. certainly over the last 100 years, if you go back three, four generations, but an enormous change in, in living standards. And that's occurred through all kinds of creative destruction you mentioned, technological change, the competition to create that technological change. That's, it has forced the innovators to share the benefits with consumers through competition from new competitors, mm-hmm. etc. So most people are glad the example I mm-hmm. always use is uh, agriculture in 1900 forty percent of the American people worked on the farm. Most people are glad we let that transition take place mm-hmm. where now we have two percent of the people working mm-hmm. on the farm surely there are some people who are disappointed they wanted their great-grandchildren to be farmers like them. they're disappointed but the solace is they have a much ho- a longer lifespan they lead more all kinds of more interest li- their lives are more interesting in all kinds of ways in these limited access orders, why doesn't that take place? What's at risk? Why would there's no risk in America? Very mm-hmm. little risk in America that violence is going to break out mm-hmm. because uh, Toyota and Honda are doing better in the American car market, <laughs> right, forcing then, American yeah, car right. makers to compete. And, right. right. So, what is going on in these uh, these less open societies? That's where the the risk of violence is, is real and palpable. It's not just. I mean, I want to make. I want our listeners to understand. It's not just. Well, the police aren't doing their job. We're talking mm-hmm. about something radically different.
1: Here. Right. Well, think about Vesa in Mexico, for example. I think uh, that that's a good analogy to what's different about uh, a natural state, firms in a natural state, than in the U.S. economy. So, you gave the example of uh, uh, Honda and Toyota uh, out-competing Ford and GM, for example, uh, in in recent years. And so so what's the difference? Well, one of the things, uh, think about Peta Vesa in Mexico. So Peta Vesa is the oil company, the state-owned oil company. It has a monopoly on this. I like it. It has, uh, and and one of the parts of the natural state aspect of this, the privilege, is that it has an an immense labor force uh, that is paid through the oil revenue. So rather than all of the oil revenues making it into the government budget a fair portion of them goes directly to the this huge labor force that they employ are you suggesting it's inefficiently large yes it's inefficiently large okay uh inefficiently large and the wages are above competitive wages uh now suppose that the government decided well this isn't right let's let's get rid of that uh uh <laughs> What would happen? Well, one of the reasons that they have a labor force that's this large is it's actually also a private army. And so in order to change the rules about the way that this company was governed, uh, the government would have to fight this. (laughs) And it's not obvious who would win in that because (laughs) the uh, nature of the, the armed forces in Mexico is such that they don't have a great deal of experience. And so this is, uh, uh, and and so this is one of the ways in which, although there isn't violence associated with this, it's that's an equilibrium concept. There's not violence because uh, it's not in the interest of the government to threaten this firm, and yet the firm has, uh, you know, various aspects of monopoly privilege.
0: Well, let's um, let's play this out a little farther. Uh, we had an interesting podcast. Uh, A while back with Brian Kaplan, whose new book, uh, talking about his new book, The Myth of the Rational Voter. Mm -hmm. And in that book, he argues that voters are irrational, excuse me, ignorant and irrational uh, and are not aware of their economic, uh, not always aware of of what's in their best economic interest and certainly don't have an incentive to act in their own economic interest when they're in the ballot, uh, when -hmm. they're filling out their ballots and voting. So if we went to these workers in this Mexican uh, oil firm, oil monopoly, and said, "Look, you guys, you know you're living well now relative to your neighbors, but you don't realize that this is an incredibly inefficient system. An enormous portion of of output here is being sacrificed because of the way that the incentives are, and, and you're aware of it because mm-hmm. you can see that you don't work so hard, which is pleasant, but." Now if we could just get rid of this monopoly mm-hmm. uh, and loosen things up around the economy in general, you'd do better. You, you think you'd do worse, but actually you'll do better.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, are they going to be against that because of the uncertainty because they don't believe the economics? or is it what I think you're saying before, which I like to see you push into this example. Are you saying that something really radically different could come out of a, a rearrangement of incentives in the oil company.
1: Well, I think part of the issue has to do with whether, in fact, in the short run these workers would be better off. And that's that's the real key. They might not be. They might not be. In fact, probably it looks be. like they probably yeah. wouldn't be. <laughs> Almost
0: certainly wouldn't be.
1: <laughs> and so that, that's the key. And so one of the issues has to do, I think, in in all natural states is what is the ability to buy out privilege? Mm-hmm. It's very hard to do that because think about, I think this is a problem all around Latin America. So Latin America traditionally has had these huge land grants, uh, many of which exist uh, to this day. And so you have very inefficient use of land. Land doesn't go to the highest valued user. Uh, and one of the reasons has to do with uh, the the lack of property rights the, and, and and the lack of uh, uh, capital markets. It's hard to uh, 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 use land as collateral and the like mm-hmm. and so that. But I think part of it also is the, the difficulty of buying people out. You know that is if they, if this this gives landowners a degree of privilege. You know, say well, but wouldn't you be better off in a system where we made uh, a, a very different kind of system that, that 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 grew more. You know, but and let's and in order to get there, we're going to buy you out of your privilege. The problem is, I think, is how do you sustain that deal? Once that deal becomes public, you know the issue is well, why? Why should we buy? Yes, it's right to get rid of their privileges, but why, be, by virtue of them being privileged, why should we buy them out? Right. And so the risk is really that the, that that the exchange is not credible, and in fact, so that they lose their lose their privileges without being compensated. You know, I think that that's a problem today in the United States, for example, with respect to water rights. Mm-hmm. You know, water rights in California, whereby farmers um, have access to water at pennies on a dollar of the. Of well, the
0: lots of other areas, um, mm-hmm. sugar quotas, uh, right? Right. There are a lot of things we're really talking here. The technical name for what we're talking about here is is inefficiency. Mm-hmm. It's it's to me a it's a slightly dangerous concept. I used to spend a lot of time on it in class. I spend less now. But the, the idea here is that we we could imagine a change in in policy that led to a, a bigger pie, as to use the, mm-hmm. example we, the metaphor we used earlier. And the pie would be sufficiently large that everyone could be made better off. But since there's no guarantee that everyone will be made better off, it's much more difficult to, to get put those types of policies in place. It's, it's a, It reminds me a little bit, uh, in a perverse way, of, of Rawls's veil of ignorance.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: If I told you we're, we're going to transform society, it's going to be great. Uh, there's going to be this whole new order in this particular case, an apt term. And it's going to lead to all kinds of wonderful innovation and change. Of course, where you are in that world is going to be very different than where you are in this world because what's rewarded in that world is not what's rewarded in this world. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there is a tendency to stick with the status quo. Mm -hmm. Now, you put dollar figures on on this... um, these different societies in today's world, basically, if I if I have it correct, uh, limited access orders have per capita income between four hundred dollars annually and eight thousand.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, open access orders are the eight thousand and above group. So the claim is that if you're in this limited access order, basically there's a there's a ceiling, mm-hmm. um, but there is room. There's an enormous range for growth within that. Mm-hmm. That of between 400 and 8,000. Mm-hmm. So what, what's possible within those societies? And can they get above? Why can't they do better than that?
1: All right. Well, two 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 aspects of this. The first, um, I want to correct one thing you said. Uh, uh, first, we think about open uh, limited access orders as being, as you said, from 400 to 8,000, maybe 10,000. Uh, so the richest of the limited access societies are uh, uh, countries like Mexico, uh, uh, Argentina, Brazil, Russia, for example. They're they're all around at that upper limit. The open access societies, which include all the advanced industrial democracies, are above twenty thousand per capita. Wow. And it's and, and there are there's a gap few, there. There's Chasm. a big gap, <laughs> yes. And there are a few societies in between that are making what we call the transition between limited access and open access. Uh, and, and the like. So Korea, South Korea is an example of a country that's at the upper limits of the uh, transition. They're, they're, they're very close to being an open access order, both in terms of their per capita income and in terms of the institutions in their society. Uh, but basically there's a really large gap between this. And, if, and it's very hard to bridge that gap. Uh, as you said, these, uh, uh, one way to think about these different kinds of orders is that they are equilibria and that it's very hard to get out of the equilibria of a limited access society. And most uh, uh, countries on the planet today are, are limited access orders. Nonetheless, what you were alluding to is that within limited access orders or natural states, there's a lot of room for growth. Uh, societies that have eight thousand dollars a year per capita are far richer and uh, wealthier than, than those that are at four hundred, or those that are at two thousand. Uh, and so, uh, so there are lots of. Uh, uh, potentials for growth within limited access orders uh, in terms of becoming uh, more institutionally differentiated, more sophisticated organizations, and greater degrees of specialization and exchange in the economy.
0: But your correction on my point that, that there's this gap that it's roughly, there's a bunch of societies that are four hundred eight thousand 8,000 per capita, and there's a bunch that are 20,000 and above, really points to the... Uh, to, to, Two things. One is on average, it matters a lot where you're born.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, it, it's really nice and pleasant to be born in a in an open access order because the forecast for your economic well being is, is much, much happier. However, there are individuals in the limited mm-hmm. access order who do quite well.
2: Absolutely. Right?
0: Uh, who live uh, the same, have the same standard of living when, and the same mm-hmm. lifestyle as someone in a so they're not and that's correct correct mm-hmm. that's right uh, I heard R.J. Uh, Hillman excuse me um, talk about this when he said basically uh, you know there aren't so much poor countries as there are uh, poor people in mm-hmm. certain countries who are being exploited. so the, the elites in those in those societies, such as North Korea or, or Argentina have what we would call a modern developed mm-hmm. lifestyle. That's but right. it's just limited to a much
1: smaller, smaller group within, within there. That's right. right? Yeah, so one, one way to think about India, for example, is that the middle class is you know 200 million people. This is <laughs> almost as large as the middle class in the United States. The difference is, is that they have 800 million people living yeah. in poverty or 600 million yeah. people living in poverty, some dire poverty. So I think that's exactly right. All these societies around the world, almost all the societies around the world have access to global markets. Uh, And so that means that they can invest in uh, their assets uh, outside of the country, something that was much more difficult to do two generations ago, say around World War II or 1950 uh, and the like. And so their assets can be much more secure. And, and of course, they have access to the technology and consumer products of a developed world.
0: And they've got those those monopoly privileges generating a nice flow of resources that allows them to to afford all of
1: that. Mm-hmm.
0: Do those tend to be hereditary in those societies?
1: Uh, in many cases, but in many cases it's also based on organizations and that the organization, uh, the, there's a hierarchy within the organization. I'm not thinking of an example now, but uh, it can be hereditary based, it can be based organizationally. So think about, uh, another way to think about it is just where does the sovereign come from,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? There are several different wh- mechanisms in authoritarian regimes. So one is a hereditary monarchy. Right, the Saudi, uh, the Saudis uh, is uh, is an example today. Uh, you, you know, as were the the the, uh, the the Stuart and the Stuart kings of England uh, in early modern England. Uh, but but there are others. Uh, another is a, a party. Think about the the yeah, the, the, Communist. The, <laughs> the Communist Party in the socialist states, or the PRI in Mexico. That's the Revolutionary Party. That's known by the Spanish initials PRI. Uh, and the like. And then another one is a military succession rule. And some of the military succession rules, such as the uh, uh, dictators in uh, the military dictatorships in Brazil uh, in the mid-20th century, actually used elections as a means of selecting the next leader.
0: Selecting the next dictator. Yes. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, – and who voted in those elections?
1: Do you know? No, I don't know the answer to that. Is it
0: maybe just the military, just the officers? Mm-hmm. It wasn't the people. Yeah. I well, it wasn't everybody. No. 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 Now, this conversation, to some of you out there listening, might strike you as a a sort of pie in the sky, to use a bad phrase, given we're talking about economic pie, but um, a theoretical conversation about ways of categorizing, uh, creating a taxonomy of different societies. But what I found fascinating about the book is its implications for economic uh, development. So I'm actually going to read from the first page of a recent paper where you've applied some of the ideas in the book to economic development. Uh, The paper is called Limited Access Orders in the Developing World, A New Approach to the Problems of Development. Because I think what's interesting about the approach is the way it gives you a new way to think about uh, not so much maybe economic development, but the failures of economic development. Mm -hmm. So let me give you – it's a lengthy quote, but I think it really sums up uh, a lot of uh, the state of economic development and uh, attempts to – to help people around the world. Here's the the quote. Existing development policy is based on models of the developed world and attempts to make developing countries look more like developed ones. Unfortunately, the social dynamics of developed countries fundamentally differ from those of developing countries. Development practitioners therefore face a mismatch between the development problems they seek to address and the available tools. They They aim to implement social, economic, and political institutions characteristic of the developed West in societies that often cannot even secure basic physical order. To improve state capacity, they might, for example, administer donor funds conditional on improving government transparency through better financial auditing and public funds. But they do so in countries where potential leadership groups compete for control through violence, intimidation, and occasionally the ballot box, and where new groups replace old groups at regular intervals. Development practitioners face the futility of trying to solve a problem without knowing its cause and to build state capacity in societies that regularly dismember their governments. Development tools based on first world experiences are ill-suited to the development goals in third world countries. End of quote. So what I love about that, and I think it's a deep insight, is that we have a natural human tendency to look at successful societies, the ones you call open access orders, look at these limited access orders, see what they're missing that isn't in their societies that we have in the open access orders, and graft them, mm-hmm. uh, to use a disparaging phrase, willy-nilly, uh, to, to mimic some of the institutions of the developed societies without realizing their inappropriateness. Mm-hmm. So what are some examples of what we've done in growth, uh, attempts to, to grow and fight poverty overseas, that have had that stupidity about them.
1: Let me give two examples, one of which we've already been talking about. So one of the key aspects of development advice over the last 25 years has been to create markets and competition.
0: Which are good. We know. Right? <laughs> Which they are work good. like a charm here. <laughs>
1: they do. They work like a charm in open access orders. Uh, but of course, to the extent that limited access and privilege, the creation of privilege is part of the glue that's keeping the society together, then uh, creating competition, open access in, uh, to, to, to markets in these societies then threatens the source of rents and hence threatens the source of stability. And so most countries, for this reason, resist this kind of advice. And there's a paradox here. Obviously, the people with the privileges um, would be worse off by creating competitive markets. Uh, And so they want to resist, and that's a standard interest group activity. We see that everywhere. But there's a paradox here, and that is even the people being exploited by this system are going to help defend it. And the reason is it's better to be exploited than it is to be in, in the midst of violence. And so to the extent that these privileges are part of the glue that's holding the society together, then trying to transplant markets and competition directly into these societies is gonna make everybody worse off.
0: Now is that true for, would you argue that that's true in current Russia? Uh, My impression, I don't know much about it, I know a little bit about it. My impression is that Russia is a a much more violent place uh, Mm -hmm. than many. It's certainly more violent than it was under police when it was a police state. But are you suggesting that it was better to be a uh, a person in a police state under Stalin or uh, even Andropov in the in the sort of latter days of the Soviet regime than today, where it's a more competitive, open, politically economically open. It's politically it's not so open. But
1: is that what you're arguing? No, not at all. I think that that that. Um The Soviet Union under Stalin or even Andropov uh, uh, was a very different kind of a natural state than they have now. And that they have a, a, we make distinctions among natural states. And the the kind of natural state that evolved under Yeltsin, I think, um, was one with significantly more freedom and flexibility and and more specialization and exchange than in the Soviet Union. Uh, And so it's not an argument, uh, a temporal argument like that. I think it's much more a, a question of thinking about modern Russia now. Um, would russia would the average Russian citizen be better off if we tried to introduce significantly more competition into russia so russia 's already a violent society and, and what 's likely to happen with that well there 's likely to be much more violence. One of the things that that my co author Doug North is always pointing out is that the key things about making societies the economy of some societies work is getting to people to compete on the margin of price and <laughs> price and quality mm-hmm. and one of the things that 's always astonishing about Russia is that that they that, that that they compete on the basis of violence that in the I, I, example of uh, the banking industry that the banking industry uh, moved from a relatively uh, 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 It was very unstable but lots of different kinds of bankers and and they murdered each other till now there's a much smaller number of oligarchs and they share the rents and it's much more stable. And so it's... it's (laughs) Well, it's an interesting example. I mean, you
0: you know, the... um, The use of violence as a competitive tool is not only against the law in the United States, it's just not in fashion. Mm -hmm. There's a cultural... um, Uh, disdain for violence as a competitive technique in in the modern American economy. Mm -hmm. You don't go over and uh, GM, going back to our car example, when GM found itself struggling to compete with Honda or or Toyota, they didn't go over to the Toyota showroom and break the windows or or hire some thugs to beat up customers to create uncertainty about the shopping experience at at, at Honda. They could have, right? And you're Mm -hmm. suggesting that that's more along the lines of what happens in other societies.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What role does culture play in that in that choice? Um, are we just lucky that we have that cultural antipathy to that I mean we're, it's ironic we're called a violent society but but we don't compete in general through violence except in underground illegal activity right.
1: Yeah, no I think open access orders are very different in that regard I, and 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 I think there are three key we haven't talked a lot about open access orders and the logic uh, of what sustains them um, and Go ahead, I think, talk about them. you know i think that there are three pieces the first is of course open access open access to organizations of all types, uh, not just economic but political social religious uh, and the like uh the second is uh, uh having a, a degree of rule of law, institutions, and constitutions, and the third element is beliefs. That, that, and so culture is, does have a role. And the beliefs um, are various states, uh, variously known as, as forms of inclusion uh, uh, as opposed to exclusion uh, and, and equality. We are all citizens. There's a notion that, that, that we're all alike in some sense and we're equal before the law. Uh, and that that's very important, I think, because of what I call the consensus condition. The consensus condition is the idea that one of the ways in which um, citizens police the constitutional rules is that they're able to act in concert against potential violations. And when you act in concert, you threaten those in power with being withdrawn for power. Uh, and when people agree on what the rules are, that is, that's the consensus condition, then they're much more likely to be able to defend the rules. And I think that that's one of the key differences between... Um, uh, open access societies and limited access societies. So, for example, if you if you look in in in, in various places in the developing world, various parts of limited access orders, and ask uh, citizens, um, uh, would an authoritarian are are there circumstances in which an authoritarian leader would better solve our problems than democracy? Or are there circumstances in which coups are justified? Typically, you get really high rates of response. So, are there coups justified? I saw a poll from the mid or, mid or early 90s uh, in in um, uh, Venezuela. Uh, over a majority say yes. Right. You know, uh, in in South Korea, which is a functioning democracy since 1987, uh, one of the countries making the transition to a uh, open access orders, and, and, and but a history of an authoritarian, a strong authoritarian leader with uh, Park Chung Hee that initiated the transition, uh, and there um, you, you, the, there are polls that ask, uh, are there circumstances under which the authoritarian do better, and, and, and a majority of the people say yes. You can't imagine that, and so so let's talk in America, ab- yeah. in America here, and so let's talk about a pragmatic example, court packing. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Franklin Roosevelt, in 1937, at the height of the New Deal's popularity, uh, where the New Dealers have constitutional-sized majorities in the House, the Senate, and, and the state governments, uh, and, and he proposes to, uh, in, a, in effect, uh, uh, emasculate the Supreme Court by expanding it. All right. uh, we happen to have public opinion polls from this era, uh, weekly public opinion polls on this, and at no moment was there a majority of the country in favor of that. So, what does that mean? That means that some of the beneficiaries of this this, this institutional move, emasculating the court, are saying, no, that's wrong. Yeah. Whereas, if you go to Latin America, for example, and, and look at court packing, that, then you get majorities in favor of it because they, they want to benefit from it. They want to take the, the benefits now.
0: So, why do we have that consensus here? And, 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 and also, let me, or I'll find a digression, but I, it's, I'm interested in what you're going to say about it, so let's, just, let's keep digressing we have a consensus here but i would argue that what that consensus covers has shrunk over time mm-hmm. our willingness to uh, use the constitution to forestall what what are considered popular policies has has diminished greatly over the, the last 100 years and probably the last 50 years and do you agree with that do you have any thoughts on why that might be true
1: i'm not sure i'd agree with that i think that the the the, the boundaries of the <laughs> of public policy in terms of what the supreme court uh uh, seeks to prevent has changed dramatically and so where, whereas uh, uh, for the first 150 years um, the economic clauses of the Constitution such as the contracts clause or the takings clause uh, were, were significantly binding and those have in, in the 1930s were, were swept away and so those as binding constraints are not but the equal protection clause for example for sure. due process clause have become very important and so there's sort of a switch So I think it's very hard to measure whether we do less of that. But I think it's very clear. I think what you're suggesting that with respect to the economy, that there's um, been a a significant change in in the way the Constitution works.
2: Yeah, I think
0: that's true. Uh, Now, we went off uh, on a tangent. You you were talking about a couple examples of trying to graft uh, Western institutions onto – countries. The first one you gave was markets. Do you remember the second one yes. about 15 minutes ago? I can rewind the tape if we
1: have to. No, no, no. <laughs> I remember the second one. It, uh, the second one is thinking about democracy and elections. Mm-hmm. So elections work very differently in the circumstance of limited access versus open access orders. And, and part of it is simply because of open access, the degree of which we have uh, in open access orders a much river, richer set of organizations so in uh, uh so that's that that's an important piece that that people are much more likely in open access orders to be able to organize and represent themselves or have some organization represent themselves re- represent them than they are um in limited access orders uh another piece that, that that's important is that often in limited access orders they have elections but they're the elections are hamstrung in various ways. The opposition can't compete <laughs> as easily. <or laughs> right, isn't allowed to get, they get no press coverage, just slight handicap, right? That's yeah. right. Yeah, that, that, uh, that's, that's and there's one other difference that I think is really critical, something I call the tragic brilliance mechanism. And it's the idea um, in all open access orders, there are limits uh, on what the government's about. There are natural bounds. So, for example, in the United States, uh, a, as in Western Europe, whether or not you get water service or electricity service doesn't depend upon who you vote for. There are certain things that you just get by virtue of being a citizen. Uh, whereas in Mexico, this is very different. Uh, in Mexico, 80 percent of the historically under the PRI, this uh, institutional party that ruled Mexico from roughly 1930 to 2000, Eighty uh, percent of the lower governments' budgets came from higher governments, uh, and and they uh, and and getting a budget depended upon whether or not the locality cooperated with the PRI. That is, whether or not the local voters voted for the PRI. And so there, very literally, they would cut your water off if you failed to vote for them. It's like Chicago. It's like Chicago, Chicago is an example the of that. Old days. Yes, in the old days, <laughs> under the older Mayor Daley, <laughs> and the city machines of the United States, to a degree, at the turn of the twentieth century.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I was joking, but it's not—it's not really a joke. I, it, was, yeah. it was claimed, and I, I think it's true that that Hyde Park, the area where the University of Chicago is, and which often voted for Mayor Daley's primary opponent, the Democrat challenging Mayor Daley, if there was one, for the first Mayor Daley is alleged that because of that, Mayor Daly would, would give Hyde Park poor snow removal, poor garbage collection, et cetera. So I, there may be some actual truth to the joke, unfortunately. Yes. Um, so given this, the failure of, uh, of most development efforts that have tried to graft these Western institutions into environments where they do not function mm-hmm. the same way, what, if anything, is possible to help currently poor societies become more successful? What, if anything, might work to help currently poor societies join more successful open access orders? It, it appears to be the exception that rather than the rule. We, we have mm-hmm. this incredible optimism that it's like building a bridge. If you just just apply enough resources, we can just get this thing done. Right. That's the Bono uh, solution. Right. Um, the UN solution. We just just got to work together. Right. And you're suggesting there's fundamental forces that oppose it. So does that mean we should just throw up our hands? Is there anything, is there anything that we can do out from the outside? Is there anything that they can do? Those who are suffering from these uh, systems on the inside.
1: Well, before I a- answer the question directly, I want to focus on on something you said, and that that is. The idea that uh, that so many people have the opt- this naive optimistic view that if we just apply re- that it 's like an engineering problem that if we just apply enough resources and, and of course arguing on the other side are economists like Bill easterly. Right uh you know who who uh, observed that over that since World War two the developed countries have provided on the order of a trillion dollars to the developed world and gotten very little payoff. Uh, there are very few success stories that you can point to uh as as having uh, uh succeeded because of of aid. There are some success stories such as the uh the Southeast Asian tigers, but they tended not to succeed by virtue of the aid somebody
0: does win the lottery every year every lottery so pure chance that's a bad example but um, it's a very bad metaphor but you get my point yes
1: all right. So let's turn to the question. So what what is it that can be done? And wh- one of the things that we point out is that uh, focusing on the nature of the natural state, there are there we do have a notion of the progression of natural states, uh, and we differentiate actually three or four different kinds of states of uh, natural states or limited access orders. Uh, one is uh, fragile. The the next is a basic, and the next is a mature. And so these can be distinguished in the nature of the organization. So in a fragile natural state, the only organization is the state, and it's very fragile, and it's subject to falling apart. And examples in the modern world are Chad and Somalia uh, and uh, uh, Rwanda. uh,
0: Afghanistan.
1: Afghanistan, yes. Uh, in the basic natural state, uh, basic natural state, there are there is a differentiation of organizations, and so there is a degree of specialization and exchange that can occur in these societies. But all organizations are part of the state. There are very few sanctioned organizations that are, uh, uh, say, privately held corporations. And then in the mature natural state. Um, uh, there are private organizations. They're all elite-based, and so they all have degrees of privilege, typically. Uh, but nonetheless, you have private organizations, and so you can see that there's a progression here of uh, uh, of sophistication, uh, both at the level of organizations, at the level of the economy in terms of specialization and exchange, as well as uh, uh, um, a level of uh, government institutions to support these different kinds of services. Uh, And so one of the the key things that we point to is that it's important to see what stage a particular country is and to help it move along this progression. And that's a very different kind of notion than um, expecting a country to make a leap from whatever kind of natural state it is into an open access order.
0: And the implication is is that encouraging organization of various kinds is is just generally a good thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's possible. Um, as you point out, a lot of that organization threatens the status of the people who hold power. Do um, you want to say anything else about development that might be productive in terms of making that leap across the chasm?
1: Well, I think one of the interesting things, uh, and, and, and this is, again, a pessimistic viewpoint, has to do with the role of violence. That if you look, so one of the things that Bob Bates, in his uh, recent book on, on prosperity and violence it's called uh, he asks why is it that the, when the early modern Europe states of, of, uh, were, were developing and, and uh, were developing countries um, why were they able to make the transition and why are modern African states not and one example and one re- thing he points to is violence that in the world of early modern Europe in the 15th, 16th and 17th century the major European states are fighting each other all the time and this means that states that pr- provide, uh, that, that, that devise better institutions, both for husbanding the economy and for mobilizing resources, um, are uh, more likely to succeed in that competition. And so states in Western Europe progressively develop because the uh, uh, gr- greater degrees of uh, sophistication in, in government institutions uh, 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 help the countries uh, in that kind of competition. So, for example, one of the ways in which the 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 uh, uh, it was called in 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 18th century Britain the victualling board. But the victualling board was the board that that supplied the ships. And one of the problems during the Seven Years' War—that's Americans sometimes refer to it as the, the uh, French and Indian Wars, from 1756 to 1763—this was uh, one in a, a major war in a series of major wars between Great Britain and, and, and France. Uh, so the British fleet is much larger than the French fleet, but still the the, the British are not able to, to 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 bottle up the free the the French fleet in 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 the um. In, in the ports because they can't stay at sea long enough. And there, there just aren't enough of them. I mean, there may be 10 times as much, but still they can't be out there policing the, the, the policing the harbors. And so the French fleet then can have really big local concentrations and, and, and wreak havoc on the British. And so, and part of the problem is victualling, is supplying the ships, because who gets to supply the ship? Well, this is a, this is a privilege. It's given to a lord who's a prominent member of the coalition. Uh, he has no particular specialization in this. It's just a privilege. It's a way to make profits. And so one of the things they begin to hit on is to, is to open up access, that is to create competition for supplying ships. And that dramatically changes the 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 efficiency of this process so the ships can stay at sea much longer and that allows them to bottle up the french fleet and win so it's really the competitive urge here the need to win this war that causes britain to transform itself in this particular area from uh, limited access into more open access all right now let's go to africa and think about post world war ii africa during the cold war one of the things bates um, points to is during the Cold War there's this immense competition of course between the Soviet Union and its allies and the United States uh, and, and its allies for clients and they're competing in Africa and so if you raise your right hand you get an immense amount of money from the, from the west. If you raise your left hand you get an immense amount of money from the, right, uh, from, from the Soviet Union. So much so that, that these countries don't have to husband their economies in order, in order for the leaders to survive. Similarly, one of the things that happens is is the United States and the Soviet Union are really nervous in this period that local conflicts between their clients are going to erupt into fights uh, among them. And so they both subsidize the UN to police these fights and police borders. So what does that mean? That means that, that, that the West has prevented the kind of competition in Africa... <laughs> That was the very kind of competition that allowed it to succeed. It's a gruesome story, Barry, but very interesting. (laughs) It is a gruesome story. As I said, it's pessimistic. Uh, It also helps us understand East Asia, Japan, uh, uh, Taiwan, and and South Korea, for example, are all countries that face security threats of different kinds at different periods. Uh,
0: It's fascinating. Have you seen the movie The Queen? Yes. So we watched it. uh, It's the story of how the monarchy in, in... Britain reacted to the death of Princess Diana, and I was trying to explain it to my kids. Trying to explain to them what the royal family is in England. It's almost impossible to explain. Um, When asked what do they do, the answer is not much. When asked what their role is, the answer is not much. When asked what they get in return, the answer is a great deal. Uh, I tried to explain to them what a figurehead is. It's a difficult term to explain. It's uh, it's uh, has a texture to it that is that is inherently uh, subtle and complex. But it strikes me, thinking about the movie and your your story, somehow Europe was able to get to a place where the monarch was a figurehead. What a great thing! Mm-hmm. Uh, even if they're expensive, it, it's a bargain. <laughs> it's a tremendous bargain. So you give the example of these victualling the victualling problem of having to supply ships with food, and the monarch. And the coalition realizing that, gosh, this is really expensive having this monopoly privilege. Mm-hmm. Let's open it up. So that happens, and it gets opened up, and it turns out pretty well. They win the war. Uh, they did win the war, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Okay, few. So uh, that spreads, right? right? Over mm-hmm. doesn't happen in twenty years. It happens over a few hundred years, mm-hmm. where they go, they become a, a real, a real, dem- a constitutional uh, system. How does that happen? And and why is it just that? I, I mean, I love the idea that it's a fascinating idea that uh, that other parts of the world weren't able to uh, face that competition, and and therefore could afford to to be in a, inefficient. Right. Is is there more to it than that? Well, there's right. certainly
1: more to it than that. I mean, part of it is the competition in the face of organizations. So Europe already had a degree of organizations uh, uh, that allowed them to take advantage of this, and I think that that's a key point. Yeah, that's true. Um, but there are aspects to this. I think that there are... One of the keys, I think, is the movement toward kinds of limited access orders. We call it on the doorstep the doorstep conditions um, that, that make incremental... Increases in access easier, so the movement, for example, from a system of peer privilege to a system of rule of law for elites, is important. So, mm-hmm. for example, a movement for from a, a judgment whereby the king decides in favor of who's more powerful to a system of rules and law, whereby it's a more judicial or court-based system is still is
0: highly class-organized. That's right,
1: but you don't have access if you're not privileged. You don't have access to this. You're a serf. <laughs> yes. Uh, you can't peasant. use the courts if you're a peasant. You can't, you can't sue the lord of the manor in the courts. Uh, but lords of the manor, but different lords of the manors can sue one another. That's the key. Yeah,
0: that's a huge advantage.
1: It is. And, 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 and one of the advantages of this is that incremental, it's, it's possible when you have these kinds of institutions to incrementally increase who has access to that. So one of the things that has this, you get a growing mercantile class, a growing commercial class that gets rich. You can allow them access. And that changes both their position in society, but also the rules that govern them. And by virtue of extending the rules of rule of law to them, uh, that allows their organizations to be yet more efficient uh, and help the economy grow. And I think that that's one of the keys. Another piece of this is the franchise. So originally, uh, so, so Britain has a parliament. Uh, the parliament in the 18th century represented on the order of um, you know 1 in 10, one in, 1 in 20 adult males, so not women, and so a small portion of society. Uh, but, but having a representative system in elections like that allowed them in the 19th century to expand, well, who has access? Who is, who is an elector? And through the various reform acts of the 19th century, beginning in the 1830s, they, they expanded that from a very small portion of British society into uh, all adult males.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, Ryan, one time I want to shift gears and ask you a, a question about related, more perhaps, to domestic uh, politics. You note in the book the traditional view of special interest politics is that special interests threaten the standard of living and growth in democracy. So, in the standard story, the role of special interests in the political process is to carve out rents for itself, carve mm-hmm. out special privilege, carve out exclusions, carve out uh, havens from competition. But you criticize that view. Uh, what's the role of special interests in, in your view?
1: Well, in some ways, we turn this on its head. Uh, I, it, it is true that all organizations and in special interests want privileges. They want to create rents and, and the like. And so all societies, including open access societies, have uh, organizations that, that seek rents. The difference is, is that when you have open access and many organizations that are competing for rents, uh it, the problem with giving privilege it, to a small number of them is that all the rest are denied so one of the exa- one of the ways to think about this when the united states after um the civil war wanted to create a, a railroad to the the pacific it had uh or before the civil war uh, it it was very difficult and the reason is is that at, at the time they could only afford to build one route and there were three possible routes a northern route a central route and a southern route and all the and, and the problem, there's a, there's a coalition against <laughs> any particular route. Right. Everything was blocked,
0: hoping each, yes. each of the excluded groups would block it, hoping they could turn things around and get it for themselves.
1: And I think that's a very general principle. And so one of the things that, uh, although there are interest groups and interest group privilege to a degree um, in, in, in our society... Um, you know, we still have immense numbers of relatively competitive markets, and moreover, there are not restrictions on the ability to create new markets. And so, you know, the huge transformation with the the, the IT businesses uh, uh, and the computer industry over the last 25 years uh, would have been very hard to have happen in a, in a in a country like Mexico, but much more much more easily in a country like ours.
0: I mean, it's a it's a great point about about special interests, I mean, I've always assumed that it played a role in limiting the, the power of protectionism. So in the early days of the Bush administration, I don't know, it was the early days, I think it was, that uh, they succumbed to political pressure and they put on a steel tariff, which was very popular in certain parts of the country, parts of the country that had very narrowly gone for Bush in, the first, in his first election of 2000, West Virginia being the obvious example. And... Um, Manufacturing employment plummeted. Whether mm-hmm. it was, I haven't seen any formal work on whether that was due to the steel tariff or not, but I suspect it at least contributed. So presumably, car makers and refrigerator makers, and others who use steel, complained, and, and mm-hmm. it has been dropped. So mm-hmm. it didn't get dropped because a bunch of economists signed a petition. It didn't right. get dropped because a bunch of consumers uh, lobbied Washington, which is which is. Uh, uh, not rational, given the small benefits and large costs of that lobbying for individual consumers. It got, lot, it, got it happened because of the the power of uh, of special interests on the other side. I think that's a, a very uh, I love that um, that point. I think there's a lot to it. Uh, in closing, you want to say anything about the relationship of your work to that of a colleague, your colleague here at Hoover, uh, Bruce Blinder and Mosquito, who we've interviewed a number of times on Econ Talk, talking about his work and um, the incentives that leaders face for. Keeping privilege for themselves and handing out goodies. How does your work relate to to that of Bruce's?
1: Well, it relates in several ways. There are overlaps. Uh, one of the things that Bruce um, discusses really f- fits with with our our distinction. So, Bruce likes to say that when they're... uh, So one of the distinctions that Bruce makes is the size of the selectorate. So what is the group of people in the country who have a say, an official say, uh, in who the leader is? And in democracies, that's really large, all adult citizens, uh, uh, whereas in many dictatorships, that can be very small, the Politburo, for example, in the Soviet Union. Uh, And and one of the things he points out is that in very small selectorates, the country, uh, the state tends to give out uh, private goods, whereas in very large selectorates it tends to focus on public goods, goods that are available to all uh, and the like. And I think that that's an important distinction and that, that fits with our distinction, we, we didn't discuss this, but it does fit with our distinction between the limited access societies and privileges and open access societies. Because one of the advantages of open access societies is that they have this ability to, to, to make distinctions. So think about unemployment insurance. Unemployment insurance is something that goes to, is a, is a benefit that go to people by virtue of being in a certain condition. All right. Um, most natural states do not have the ability to... Um, Uh, pursue policies of this kind Uh, and and it's not just unemployment insurance it's also poverty relief programs uh, health benefits and the like instead there it's who you know what organization what patronage system are you in for example uh, the like and and one and so one of the advantages of open access societies is that they can give benefits in in an impersonal way uh... and that that is by virtue of being a citizen and so this is an important distinction that i think is really parallel but there is a difference and, and one of the things we didn't discuss is is the theory of the state that is how we think about the state and the organization of the government itself and most models of the state uh... uh Buena de Mosquita et al in, in particular think about begin with the state as as taking it as given that you have a state it has a monopoly on violence and this brings us back to the very beginning uh, of, of our discussion—that that we argue that you can't start there, that the way to understand the way states form uh, is because of how they solve the problem of violence. And so, let me just end uh, this by saying: so one of the problems with Bruce's work uh, uh, is that it takes the size of this electorate as given. Well, where does that come from? <laughs> you know, how do you, you know, how, how do you get? Why does one country have a small one and one country have a big one?
0: and the like once it's set it's interesting to analyze it but the the deeper question is where does it come from originally Um, perhaps Bruce has some thoughts on that I'm
1: sure Bruce (laughs) does
0: (laughs) we'll ask him my guest today has been Barry Weingast senior fellow at the Hoover Institution he's the Ward C. Krebs family professor in the Department of Political Science at Stanford University Barry thanks for joining us thanks for having me